Chapter Twelve of the Sorrows of Satan by Marie Corelli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The dinner went on in the fashion of most dinners at great houses, commencing with arctic stiffness and formality, thawing slightly toward the middle course, and attaining to just a pleasant warmth of mutual understanding when ices and dessert gave warning of its approaching close. Conversation at first flagged unaccountably, but afterwards brightened under Lucio's influence to a certain gaiety. I did my best to entertain Lady Sibyl, but found her like most society beauties, somewhat of a vague listener. She was certainly cold, and in a manner irresponsive. Moreover, I soon decided that she was not particularly clever. She had not the art of sustaining or appearing to sustain interest in any one subject. On the contrary, she had, like many of her class, an irritating habit of mentally drifting away from you into an absorbed reverie of her own, in which you had no part, and which plainly showed you how little she cared for anything you or anyone else happened to be saying. Many little random remarks of hers, however, implied that in her apparently sweet nature there lurked a vein of cynicism and a certain contempt for men, and more than once her light words stung my sense of self-love almost to resentment, while they strengthened the force of my resolve to win her and bend that proud spirit of hers to the meekness befitting the wife of a millionaire, and a genius. A genius? Yes, God help me, that is what I judged myself to be. My arrogance was twofold. It arose not only from what I imagined to be my quality of brain, but also from the knowledge of what my wealth could do. I was perfectly positive that I could buy fame, buy it as easily as one buys a flower in the market, and I was more than positive that I could buy love. In order to commence proving the truth of this, I threw out a feeler toward my object. I believe, I said suddenly, addressing the Earl, you used to live in Warwickshire, at Willowsmere Court, did you not? Lord Elton flushed an apoplectic red and swallowed a gulp of champagne hastily. Yes, uh, yes, I, um, had the place for some time. Rather a bore to keep up. Once quite an army of servants. Just so, I replied, with a nod of appreciative comprehension. I presume it will require a considerable domestic retinue. I have arranged to purchase it. Lady Sibyl's frigid composure was at last disturbed. She looked strangely agitated, and the Earl stared till his eyes seemed likely to fall out of his head. You? You are going to buy Willowsmere? he ejaculated. Yes, I have wired to my lawyers to settle the matter as quickly as possible, and I glanced at Lucio, whose steel-bright eyes were fixed on the Earl with curious intentness. I like Warwickshire, and as I shall entertain a great deal, I think the place will suit me perfectly. There was a moment's silence. Miss Charlotte Fitzroy sighed deeply, and the lace bow on her severely parted hair trembled visibly. Diana Chesney looked up with inquisitive eyes, and a little wondering smile. "'Sybil was born at Willowsmere,' said the Earl presently, in rather a husky voice. "'A new charm is added to its possession by that knowledge,' I said gently, bowing to Lady Sybil as I spoke. "'Have you any recollections of the place?' "'Indeed, indeed I have,' she answered, with a touch of something like passion vibrating in her accents. "'There is no corner of the world I love so well.' I used to play on the lawns under the old oak trees, and I always gathered the first violets and primroses that came out on the banks of the Avon. And when the hawthorn was in full flower, I used to make believe that the park was fairyland, and I, 
the fairy queen. As you were and are, interposed Lucio suddenly. She smiled and her eyes flashed. Then she went on more quietly. It was all very foolish, but I loved Willowsmere, and love it still. And I often saw in the fields, on the other side of the river, which did not belong to the estate, a little girl about my own age, playing all by herself and making long daisy chains and buttercup balls, a little girl with long fair curls and a sweet baby face. I wanted to know her and speak to her, but my nurse would never let me, because she was supposed to be beneath me. Lady Sibyl's lip curled scornfully at this recollection. Yet she was well born. She was the orphan child of a very distinguished scholar and gentleman, and had been adopted by the physician who attended her mother's deathbed, she having no living relatives left to take care of her. And she, that little fair-haired girl, was Mavis Clare. As this name was uttered, a sort of hush fell on our party, as though an Angelus had rung. And Lucio, looking across at me with peculiar intentness, asked, Have you never heard of Mavis Clare, Tempest? I thought a moment before replying. Yes, I had heard the name, connected with literature in some dim and distant way, but I could not remember when or how, for I never paid any attention to the names of women who chose to associate themselves with the arts, as I had the usual masculine notion that all they did, whether in painting, music, or writing, must of necessity be trash and unworthy of comment. Women, I loftily considered, were created to amuse men, not to instruct them. Mavis Clare is a genius, Lady Sibyl said presently. If Mr. Tempest has not heard of her, there is no doubt he will hear. I often regret that I never made her acquaintance in those old days at Willowsmere. The stupidity of my nurse often rankles in my mind. Beneath me, indeed and how very much she is above me now. She still lives down there. Her adopted parents are dead, and she rents the lovely little house they inhabited. She has bought some extra land about it, and improved the place wonderfully. Indeed, I have never seen a more ideal poet's corner than Lily Cottage. I was silent, feeling somewhat in the background, on account of my ignorance as to the gifts and the position of the individual they all seemed to recognize as a celebrity of importance. Rather an odd name, Mavis, isn't it? I at last ventured to observe. Yes, but it suits her wonderfully. She sings quite as sweetly as any thrush, so she merits her designation. What has she done in literature? I continued. Oh, only a novel replied Lucio with a smile, but it has a quality unusual to novels. It lives. I hope, Tempest, that your forthcoming work will enjoy the same vitality. Here, Lord Elton, who had been more or less brooding darkly over his glass of wine ever since I had mentioned my purchase of Willowsmere, roused himself from his reverie. Why, God bless my soul, he exclaimed. You don't mean to tell me that you have written a novel, Mr. Tempest. Was it possible he had never noticed all the prominent advertisements of my book in every paper? I thought indignantly. What do you want to do that for, with your immense position? He hankers after fame, said Lucio, half kindly, half satirically. But you've got fame, declared the Earl emphatically. Everybody knows who you are by this time. Ah, my dear Lord, that is not enough for the aspirations of my gifted friend, responded Lucio, speaking for me. 
his eyes darkening with that mystic shadow of mingled sorrow and scorn which so frequently clouded their lustrous brilliancy he does not particularly care for the immense position that is due to wealth alone because that does not lift him a jot higher than maple of tottenham court road he seeks to soar beyond the furniture man and who shall blame him he would be known for that indescribable quality called genius for high thoughts poetry divine instincts and prophetic probings into the heart of humanity in short for the power of the pen which topples down great kingdoms like card-houses and sticks fools caps on the heads of kings generally it is the moneyless man or woman who is endowed with this unpurchasable power this independence of action and indifference to opinion the wealthy seldom do anything but spend or hoard but tempest means to unite for once in his own person the two most strenuously opposed forces in nature genius and cash or in other words god and mammon lady sybil turned her head towards me there was a look of doubt and wonder on her beautiful face i am afraid she said half smiling that the claims of society will take up too much of your time mr tempest to allow you to continue the writing of books i remember you told me the other evening that you were about to publish a novel i suppose you were originally i mean an author by profession a curious sense of anger burned dully within me originally an author was i not one still was i to be given credit for nothing but my banking book originally why i had never been an actual author till now i had simply been a wandering literary hack a stray super of grub street occasionally engaged to write articles to order on any subject that came uppermost at a starvation rate of pay without any visible prospect of rising from that lowest and dirtiest rung of the literary ladder i felt myself growing red then pale and i saw that lucio was looking at me fixedly i am an author lady sybil i said at last and i hope i may soon prove my right to be acknowledged as one author is in my opinion a prouder title than king and i do not think any social claims will deter me from following the profession of literature which i look upon as the highest in the world lord elton fidgeted uneasily in his chair but your people he said your family are they literary no members of my family are now living i answered somewhat stiffly my father was john tempest of rexmoor indeed and the earl's face brightened considerably dear me dear me i used to meet him often in the hunting fields years ago you come of a fine old stock sir the tempests of rexmoor are well and honourably known in county chronicles i said nothing feeling a trifle heated in temper though i could not have quite explained why one begins to wonder said lucio then in his soft smooth accents when one is the descendant of a good english county family a distinct cause for pride and moreover has the still more substantial fact of a large fortune to support that high lineage why one should trouble to fight for merely literary honours you are far too modest in your ambitions tempest high seated as you are upon banknotes and bullion with all the glory of effulgent county chronicles behind you you still stoop to clutch the laurel fie my dear fellow you degrade yourself by this desire to join the company of the immortals his satirical tone was not lost upon the company 
and I, who saw that in his own special way he was defending the claims of literature against those of mere place and money, felt soothed and grateful. The Earl looked a trifle annoyed. "'That's all very fine,' he said. "'But you see, it isn't as if Mr. Tempest were driven by necessity to write for his living. "'One may love work, for the work's sake, without any actual necessity for doing it,' I interposed. "'For example, this Mavis Clare you speak of, is she, a woman, driven by necessity?' "'Mavis Clare hasn't a penny in the world that she does not earn,' said Lord Elton gruffly. "'I suppose that if she did not write she would starve.' Diana Chesney laughed. "'I guess she's a long way off starvation just now,' she remarked, her brown eyes twinkling. "'Why, she's as proud as the proudest, drives in the park in her Victoria and Pear, with the best in the land, and knows all the swagger people. She's nowhere near Grub Street, I should say. I hear she's a splendid businesswoman, and more than a match for the publishers all round.' "'Well, I should rather doubt that said the earl with a chuckle. It needs the devil himself to match the publishers. You are right, said Lucio. In fact, I dare say that in the various phases or transmigrations of the spirit into differing forms of earthly matter, the devil, should he exist at all, has frequently become a publisher, and a particularly benevolent publisher, too, by way of diversion. We all smiled. Well, "'I should imagine Mavis Clare to be a match for anybody or anything,' said Lady Sybil. "'Of course, she is not rich, but she spends her money wisely and to effective advantage. "'I do not know her personally. I wish I did. "'But I have read her books, which are quite out of the common. "'She is a most independent creature, too, quite indifferent to opinions.' "'I suppose she must be extremely plain, then,' I observed." Plain women always try to do something more or less startling in order to attract the attention denied to their personality. True, but that would not apply to Miss Clare. She is pretty and knows how to dress, besides. Such a virtue in literary women, exclaimed Diana Chesney. Some of them are such dowdies. Most people of culture, went on Lady Sybil, in our set at any rate, are accustomed to look upon Miss Clare as quite an exception to the usual run of authors. She is charming in herself as well as in her books, and she goes everywhere. She writes with inspiration, and always has something so new to say. That of course all the critics are down upon her, queried Lucio. Oh, naturally, but we never read reviews. Nor anyone else, I should hope, said Lord Elton with a laugh. Except the fellows who write them, ha <laughs> ha! I call it damned impertinence, excuse the word, on the part of a newspaper hack to presume to teach me what I ought to read, or what I ought to appreciate. I'm quite capable of forming my own judgment on any book that ever was written, but I avoid all the confounded new poets. Avoid them like poison, sir, ha <laughs> ha! Anything but a new poet. The old ones are good enough for me. Why, sir, these reviewers who give themselves such airs with a penneth of ink and a pen are mostly half-grown, half-educated boys, who for a couple of guineas a week undertake to tell the public what they think of such and such a book, as if anyone cared a jot about their green opinions. Ridiculous! Quite ridiculous! What do they take the public for, I wonder? Editors of responsible journals ought to know better than to employ such young coxcombs, just because they can get them cheap. 
At this juncture, the butler came up behind his master's chair and whispered a few words. The earl's brow clouded. Then he addressed his sister-in-law. Charlotte, Lady Elton sends word that she will come into the drawing-room tonight. Perhaps you had better go and see that she is made comfortable. And as Miss Charlotte rose, he turned to us, saying, My wife is seldom well enough to see visitors. But this evening she feels inclined for a little change and distraction from the monotony of her sick-room. It will be very kind of you two gentlemen to entertain her. She cannot speak much, but her hearing and sight are excellent, and she takes great interest in all that is going on. Dear, dear me! And he heaved a short troubled sigh. She used to be one of the brightest of women. The sweet countess, murmured Miss Chesney with patronizing tenderness. She is quite lovely still. Lady Sybil glanced at her with a sudden haughty frown, which showed me plainly what a rebellious temper the young beauty held in control. And I fell straight away more in love, according to my idea of love, than ever. I confess I like a woman to have a certain amount of temper. I cannot endure your preternaturally amiable female, who can find nothing in all the length or breadth of the globe to move her to any other expression than a fatuous smile. I love to see the danger flash in bright eyes, the delicate quiver of pride in the lines of a lovely mouth, and the warm flush of indignation on fair cheeks. It all suggests spirit and untamed will, and rouses in a man the love of mastery that is born in his nature, urging him to conquer and subdue that which seems unconquerable. And all the desire of such conquest was strong within me, when, at the close of dinner, I rose and held the door open for the ladies to pass out of the room. As the fair Sibyl went, the violets she wore at her bosom dropped. I picked them up and made my first move. "'May I keep these?' I said in a low tone. Her breath came and went quickly, but she looked straight in my eyes with a smile that perfectly comprehended my hidden meaning. "'You may,' she answered. I bowed, closed the door behind her, and secreting the flowers, returned, well satisfied, to my place at table. End of chapter 12